All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Let's just go ahead and get started in verse 1. That'll, that'll save us some time. Here we go. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves in the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Let's pray. Father, I pray tonight in the next few minutes that we have together, Lord, would you guide us? We are, we are messed up people who control so very little, but try to control so very much. Lord, we get so confused over what's ex- what to expect of ourselves and what you actually expect of us. Lord, we live in a world in which sometimes the best laid plans of mice and men come to nothing, and that's frustrating. But Lord God, we want to trust you. So would you, from your complete knowledge and understanding and control of the universe, would you allow us uh, to trust? We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right. What is Solomon talking about here? In verse 1, Solomon says, cast your bread upon the waters. What does that mean? Does it literally mean to throw bread out to sea almost like a message in a bottle because maybe one day it'll come back to you? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's talking about. It, 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 there's actually uh, Chris Hay, when we were talking about this week, he brought up this really unique Christian song called Cast Your Bread Upon the Waters from an old group called the Imperials. And it was funky, to say the least. And after listening to the song, I still had no better clue what it meant to cast your bread upon the waters. So as I was looking into this verse a little bit, I mean, there's some really cool thoughts that guys have. Like a, a lot of guys would look at this and say, what, Paul is ta- or what Solomon is talking about is not to literally throw bread against, uh, out in the sea and see what happens to it. It's actually talking about sea trade. It means to engage in commerce with other countries across the sea. To, as it were, send your grain across the waters, for it will come back to you after many days. Solomon's talking about the way in which sea trade at that time was a very risky business. Weather on the Mediterranean is really inconsistent. There are times when it's just get out of the water because it's death to ships. When you read about some of Paul's journeys on ships in the book of Acts, you see the way if you're on the sea at the wrong time, it's disastrous. And so many conservative thinkers would go, it's better not even to venture that kind of commerce, that kind of business, to send stuff out by sea because it might sink or the boat will leak and it'll get moldy and gross and you'll have nothing. The, the, the risk of total loss was very high. But Solomon goes, do it because the chance for reward is very great too. The return that you could get on it would be very great. He says that even after, it may come back to you after many days, or you might find it after many days. The reality was it, was 
it was long waiting, especially in the days when there was no like GPS or UPS tracking to show you exactly where the boat was. Really, you send it out, you wave goodbye, and you don't know if it was a success or a total failure until the ships come back into port. That whole time, you don't know. So that kind of commerce, that kind of business was not for the faint of heart. It wasn't for those who don't do well with uncertainty for a long period of time. I would struggle with that. But Solomon says, do it. Be willing to take the risk because the reward could be worth it. Look at the next verse. It comes along the same lines. Verse 2. He says, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on the earth. Most commentators look at this verse as basically Solomon giving uh, advice about generosity, being generous to give to many people who are in need. The thought would be, look, don't hoard it for yourself. Give it to those who are in need. Yeah, maybe if you give it to somebody in need today, and then like a couple years down the road, you might be in need and not have it. Yeah, that's true. But do you trust that if God used you to provide for someone else's need, that he could also use others to provide for your need? Now, I completely agree with all of that in principle, but I'm not sure that's what Paul's main, or Solomon, I keep saying that. I've been preaching out of 1 Corinthians when I left, so I keep saying Paul instead of Solomon. I don't think that's Solomon's main point. I actually think he's continuing, many commentators would agree, that he's continuing talking about business. He's continuing, and some of you guys, this is a great encouragement to you. Just the fact that we're talking about business and commerce, because that is your life, that is your world, and sometimes we honestly don't talk about it enough in the church. Sometimes we as pastors can, because our business, if you will, is people and ministry and talking about God's word, that sometimes you can almost feel like there's a, different, a distance there. There's a separation. Okay, good. I know what it would look like to live for the Lord as a pastor or a missionary, but how do I do it in my business? How do I do it in my place of work? And so I hope that even today's message is very encouraging to you to see that Jesus is Lord over business. His kingdom extends to all commerce and, and, and business affairs so that way we can seek to carry out even that work in the name of Jesus Christ. So if that's what Paul's talking, or if that's what Solomon is talking about, I'm going to work on that. If that's what Solomon is talking about, it's not just talking about giving to those in need, but it's almost this idea some translations would say, divide your investments among seven or eight different opportunities because you don't know what disasters may happen on the earth. In other words, if you look back at verse 1, if you're sending your grain out to sea, don't put it all in one ship. Right? Diversify, right? Send out seven or eight ships. Yeah, maybe a couple may sink, but maybe the other ones won't. It was a way to mitigate some of those risks. Solomon's addressing one of the realities of life in a broken world. Life in a broken, sinful world, there is loss. There is failure. There is drought, there are floods, there is waste. And God said it would be this way. Think back to what God said to Adam in Genesis 3 after he and Eve had eaten from the fruit of the tree. Let me read this to you. This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. God says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. 
The reality is, no matter your livelihood, we work in a world that is under a curse. There will never be 100% efficiency. No matter how much quality control you have, you will still have things that go wrong. God said there would be thorns and thistles. There would be opposition. There would be unforeseen circumstances and obstacles that would come up. There would be droughts and famines and broken water pipes and jammed printers and failed hard drives and blown transmissions. That's going to happen. We're in a world that is unraveling. We work in a world that is under a curse. But even though that curse permeates all of creation, it is not 100% curse. It's not 100% wrong. There may be famines and floods, but some years there's going to be great harvests. You know what this is like. Sometimes you have a season of work in which you feel like you're putting 150% into it, and you get nothing to show for it. Then, on the other hand, though, aren't there those times when you just feel like the wind's blowing in your direction? You might put half the effort and get way more out of it. The reality is we live in a world that is under God's curse, but it is also under the control of a God who still loves to bless. He still loves to be good. And he, because he is good, he regularly does bless our work. There will be waste and loss and failure, but there will also be success and gain and blessing. The problem and the frustration is that we don't know which is which off the front end. We always want the sure thing. If I could take a risk that actually isn't a risk, that's the kind of risk I would want to take, right? We don't know what it is. That's the frustrating thing. So that's why Solomon says, diversify. Seven or eight. You don't know what disaster may happen on the earth. So to use a more modern idiom, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Although it's not even modern. It's old school to us. You know an idiom has become out of date when you have to explain it to your kids. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, eggs in a, they've never seen eggs in a basket. You mean like that carton, that cellophane thing that comes at the store? It's incomprehensible. That's the word that we've been using throughout our time in Ecclesiastes, that we, it's meaningless, it's incomprehensible. We can't see the big picture. But God does see the big picture. So trust him and do your work. Trust him and do your work. Verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain and they empty themselves in the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. I think what Paul, Solomon's talking about here is that there, as we seek to do our work, there are things that we can expect to happen, and there's a, there are things we don't expect to happen, but either way, we don't control them. You can expect that if you see huge storm clouds on the horizon, that it's going to rain. You can't control where it rains or how much it rains or any of that. It might rain a ton on your neighbor's crops and none on yours. Either way, you can expect that there's going to be rain. If it's harvest time, that rain might ruin your crop. If it's time to sow the seed, it might be really helpful to your crop. But either way, you don't control it. So he says, just do your work. You don't control that part. You're not responsible for that part. You're going to have to work with it or work around it. But keep your head. There's nothing you can do. Rain clouds usually bring rain. That one you can expect to happen. You can't control it, but you can expect it. What's less expected is for a tree to fall. We don't typically expect trees to fall. 
it's usually more of a surprise when it happens, when a windstorm or something like that comes, true, comes through, or when you find out once the tree fell down that termites had eaten it out from the inside. Once it's down, you go, oh no, I didn't see that coming. Okay, but once it falls, wherever it falls, it's going to stay there. So you'll either have to work around it or work to remove it. That seems to be his point. Well, unless you're the one who chopped it down, you didn't foresee it happening. But now you just got to deal with it, and that's okay. Either way, don't freak out, because whether you anticipated it or not, it wasn't up to you, so keep your head. Verse 4 kind of goes on to the, the, the same idea, where he says, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Solomon says it's not like you put blinders on and just go do your thing. You know, he says, no, be mindful of your circumstances, but... If you're waiting around for things to be perfect, you'll most likely never get started. I mean, use some common sense. It's, if it's pouring rain outside, it's probably not the best time to paint the outside of your house. Okay, yeah, that one makes sense. But understand that the majority of your life's work is going to be done in less than ideal circumstances. Less than ideal conditions. And as a matter of fact, your character and your work ethic will be formed more in the times when you are working in less than ideal circumstances than when it's all going great. And as a matter of fact, what you learn during those less than ideal times is what actually allows you to seize the opportunity when things are better than usual. You're not in control of the conditions in which you work, but you are responsible for how you work with the conditions you're given. That seems to be Solomon's point. He continues in verse 5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. There is so much that you don't know and that we don't control. But God knows it, and he controls it. Now, if you have different translations, you might see it looks a little bit different. In the, in the Hebrew, this is a, it's a little bit obscure to know exactly how we ought to translate this. Some of your English translations might say, as you do not know the way of the wind or the way that the bones are formed in the womb of a woman with labor. There's a way in which is he talking about two different realities or the same thing. I am persuaded, I do believe the ESV gets it right here by saying, no, when he's talking about the way of the wind, in, in Hebrew, the word for wind and spirit is the same thing. It's ruach. It says the way that the, the, that the wind works. Now, is there another place in Scripture in which the wind and the Spirit are used in connection with each other? Can you think of anything? Perhaps in the New Testament, a discussion that Jesus has with a certain religious official named Nicodemus. How, how can you ask me what it means to be born again? The wind blows where it wishes, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with those who are born of the Spirit. I think that Jesus is, is directly alluding to this verse right here about going, God is at work. He says, as you don't know the way that the Spirit comes to the bones of the woman who's with child, so you don't know the way of God who makes everything, who does everything. Look, God is working whether we're aware of it or not. God is working in his way whether we understand it or not. There is little that you actually control, but there is nothing outside of God's control. So trust him and do your work. There's very little that we understand about how and why God does things. So don't expect him to fit into your sensibilities. 
Trust him, especially when he doesn't make sense to you. I would venture to say that if you only trust in God when he makes sense to you, you don't actually trust God. You trust yourself. If God did things my way, then I would trust him. No, it doesn't work that way. God understands everything that you don't understand. And even the things you do understand, he understands it better. So trust him. Trust him, especially when he doesn't make sense to you. He's always working, even when we're not. He hasn't asked us to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. He hasn't even asked us to carry the weight of our own lives on our shoulders. The one thing he did ask us was to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. So trust him and do your work. You are not in control of the outcome of your work, but you are responsible for the care and effort and wisdom with which you do your work. Let me give a couple things just in terms of application. This is what I've been thinking about so much, and this is where it seemed to so intersect with what God was teaching me during my sabbatical. It's kind of what Todd talked about last week a little bit, where we don't just want to work hard, we want to work smart. We want to use wisdom in the way we go about doing our work. We want to be mindful of our circumstances, but we don't want to expect perfect circumstances or we'll never get started. So let me give you three points, none of which are going to seem very like unique and wow, but let's just go with it. First, you can't do nothing. You can't do nothing. Some of you guys, this is what you need to hear. You are trying to do the least as possible. And you are very easy to convince yourself that that's actually what you should be doing. To you, I think the best thing I could say is, uh, in the words of the great theologian Andy Dufresne from Shawshank Redemption, you either get busy living or what? Get busy dying. You can't do nothing. But in the same way, you can't do everything. You can't do everything. No, duh, right? Of course. However, I was confronted during my sabbatical about how much I do try to do that. I either try to do everything or the things that I do, I want to control every part of what I'm doing. I think that this is a real danger for us, especially in such a technological age. I think that, that there are so many things that come out every year, every, multiple times a year, that hold with it the promise that we will be able to do things faster and more efficiently, and that brings with it the pressure and expectation that we should therefore be able to do more. And so each season of life doesn't usually result in us simplifying things, but going, what else can I cram in here? If I could do it all quicker, then I could do more. But usually that just ends up making us feel guilty that we should always be doing more than we are. It makes us feel stressed out when we try to do more than we should. And we gen just generally feel scattered when we try to do anything. I don't know about you, that's the way I feel often. I have the accessibility to access so much information on this thing that I remember I was reading a book. Actually, I would recommend it to you guys. Where did I put it here? This is one of the best books I read during my survival. It's called Crazy Busy. It's by a pastor out in Michigan. It's called Crazy Busy. His name's Kevin DeYoung. I feel like he does a spot-on job of just nailing our info-snacking culture where it's more, 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 more. I've got to do all of it. And he asks this very important question. Could... All of the advances in technology and communication and information, 
Is the result in our lives that we're actually doing more or that we're just busier and actually accomplishing less? I would encourage you guys, if that's where you feel like you are, and maybe even more so if you don't feel like that's where you are, pick this up. It's a short read. I would really encourage you. Some of the things that he talks about in there just... It, it, it really challenged me. He, he, he basically makes the point that a full schedule doesn't really mean you're accomplishing anything. It just means you're doing stuff. Parents, you could fill up your schedule and your kid's schedule with every different kind of event and sports and robotics and church program that there is and really not accomplish much of anything. God hasn't called us to meet every need. He hasn't called you as a parent to give your child every opportunity. Please hear me on that. He hasn't called those of us who are parents to give our child every opportunity. He hasn't even called us to give our kids the same opportunities that we had. I've talked to several parents where there is almost that guilt of going, we're spending so much time with club this and club that and club that. And I feel bad because I feel like we're not really doing what we should be doing, but I got to do it as a kid, so I would feel bad if I didn't let my kids do it. Guys, we need help. As a matter of fact, like the one announcement I'm going to give at the end of the service, let me just do it now, that'll save time too. One of the things we're going to be doing this weekend is our ministry fair. It's what we do typically every fall where we just have a time between the services tomorrow and after the last one where we just have booths with all the different ministries and things that are going on to give people a chance to connect to relationships and opportunities to serve within this body. And it's great, but... For some of you, you've already taken yourself off the hook for that, right? You go, no, I'm one of those people who I don't really do much of anything and I like it that way, so this must not be for me. I'm almost even more concerned about the people who are already doing way too much going, oh, I know I should, I feel guilty and stressed out and scattered, but let's just try to do more. Guys, we can't do everything. There's a quote, let me share with you this quote from Kevin DeYoung's book. This one really hit me right between the eyes. He talks about the way in which Jesus didn't feel the burden to do everything, but his job was to follow the will of his Father. So he says this, Jesus knew that if he were to accomplish the purpose God had for him, he would have to pass up 10,000 good purposes other people had for his life. The Son of God could not meet all the needs around him. He had to get away to pray. He had to eat. He had to sleep. He had to say no. If Jesus had to live with human limitations, we'd be foolish to think that we don't. The people on this planet who end up never doing anything are those who never realize they couldn't do everything. We can't do nothing, and we can't do everything. But Solomon's point from verse 2 would be we should do more than one thing. There's loss, there's failure, there's waste. There are problems with our work. So therefore, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't try to save the world yourself. Don't try to do everything, but also don't get tunnel vision. That's probably more my problem. I just want to focus on this one thing and don't distract me with anything else. But what if that one thing is the ship full of grain that goes down and you have nothing to show for it in the end? Do more than one thing. Some of you guys, you're here tonight and I'm stressing you out. It's the end of summer. School just started. And you're already looking at your calendar going, how did I do this to myself again? How did I get myself running this crazy again? I would say that perhaps it's because you treat your schedule kind of the same way that I treat a church potluck. You grab your plate and you just fill it with the first things you come and you see, right? Then you move down the line and you go, oh, but man, that looks good. If I would have seen that, 
Maybe I wouldn't have taken all of this. And then you have a dilemma. You have choices to make at that point. Either you just kind of suck it up and just say, well, I already filled my plate, so this is what I got to do. Or you try to just cram everything in there and really overeat and make yourself sick, and then you don't enjoy or benefit from any of it. You ever spend a season of life like that where you ran yourself so crazy? People say, hey, what you been up to? And you're like, I honestly don't know. You don't enjoy it. You don't benefit it. You probably don't benefit anybody else either. Or the hard and more humbling and possibly offending thing to do would be to say, you know what? I didn't think through this very well. I'm going to grab a new plate, and now that I see the big picture, I'm going to ask the question, what really would be the best things? Whether best tasting or best for you, that's kind of up for you to decide. But that's what I would just encourage you. How do we do that? How do we, if we don't see the end from the beginning, if we, there are things that we cannot anticipate that will happen that we can't control, if we can't do everything, how do we discern what it is that we ought to do? And just as importantly, how do we discern what we shouldn't do at all? That's just as important. Just as much as determining what things you're going to focus on, you need to determine what things you're not going to focus on at all because you can't do everything. And so what things is it really that God is calling you to do? I would say this. It takes two things. It takes prayer and it takes fellowship. It takes going to God in prayer through his word and saying, God, I see this is your heart. What, what do you want me to do? Here's what I've already committed myself to. Here's what I'm thinking of committing myself to. What do you, what do you want me to do? I can't do everything. What are the seven or eight? Is, I don't know about you. I probably can't handle seven or eight main things in my life. But I think that's Solomon's point of saying it can't just be one, but it can't be everything. What is it that God wants you to focus on? Ask him. Ask him what things need to be taken away, what things might need to be added, what things just need to get a greater share of your time and attention and energy so that way you're spending your time where you need to. And secondly, it takes fellowship. It takes fellowship. It takes having other believers in your life that you sit down with and you go, hey, could you help me think through what I'm spending my life on? I'm not sure it's going in the right place. As I'm praying about it, would you pray with me? Can my life be an open book to you? That's actually something that we as the pastors here at Cornerstone started doing together this year. It kind of came from some discussions that a few of us had about feeling like we were stretched too thin. And so each one of us kind of wrote up a one-page, here's where my life is going. Here's the things that I'm spending my time on. And during our like couple times a month pastors meetings, a different guy would just pull it out and say, hey, here's where my life's at. These are the ones that I really feel like it is purposeful for me to do. Here are the ones that I've just kind of been doing. Here are the ones I haven't been doing well. Here's all of it. Help me. And to kind of have, have to develop that kind of humility that maybe it's one of your pet projects that you love, but have other people say, man, I'm not sure that's where your attention needs to be right now. It really does help to evaluate in really good ways. But this is the last thing. Let me say this as we close. Please understand this. When we talk about our work, the important work is already done. Do you understand that? The most important work that needs to happen in your life has already happened. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the biggest and most important task that ever stood in front of you was your separation from God, your alienation from God because of your sin. And for those of you, if you are not a follower of Jesus in here, that, on top of anything else, I don't want you to have good time management skills only. I don't want you just to know how to have a good work-life balance. If you accomplish everything in this world, but you don't fall, solve that fundamental task of your alienation from God, it doesn't matter. 
But for if those who do trust in Jesus Christ, please understand, in all the work that you do, the most important work is done. The perfect life that we keep trying to live that we can't, it's already been lived for us. That was one of the most refreshing thoughts that God brought to my heart during my sabbatical was, God, I don't have to try so hard to be perfect. Jesus already was. Jesus, you were already perfect for me. I can trust in your perfection and then just do my work trusting in you. He lived that sinless life that we couldn't. He died for us. He paid the penalty for our sins so that we might be forgiven. And we don't have to work for that forgiveness anymore. We don't have to try to pay off our own debt anymore. So much of Ecclesiastes is written with the, 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 just the, the death knell, literally that, the, the, the sound of impending death. It's meaningless because you're going to die anyways. Basically, it's Solomon's assumption on ever, or his conclusion on everything. It's meaningless because you're going to die anyways. Guess what? Jesus died, and it wasn't the end. He rose again. He stands in victory over death. And so we can work without this frenzied deadline that one day we're going to die, so we have to get it all done now. It doesn't mean that we're lazy. It just means that I'm not trying to cram everything that I want out of life into this time because if the Bible is true and a resurrection is coming, not just for me, but for all who believe in Jesus Christ and for creation itself, then there are better things coming than anything I could grasp now. I can let go of the bucket list. I can let go of all my hopes and dreams and just go, God, what do you want me to do? I can trust you and do my work. We don't have to work for God's approval. Jesus has already made us approved to God. When we work, we aren't simply trying to work for Jesus to do something for him. We get the privilege to work with him. He is working. We are the body of Christ through which he works on his mission to bring everything in heaven and on earth back together under him. And if that's Jesus' goal, if his goal, as Ephesians 1 says, is to bring everything in heaven and on earth together under himself, that means whatever we do, we can do it with Jesus. Regardless of your line of work, you are working for the king of the universe because he rules over all. But even more than just working with Jesus, he is working in us. Philippians 3 verse 13 says this, that God is working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The work that we are seeking to do is not our own work. It is Jesus' work. And it is his desire to work through us. If that doesn't allow you to rest even while you're working, nothing will. We can work hard and rest in our God because we can cease striving because we know he is God and he will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. We can trust him and do what he's entrusted to us to do. Let me leave you with this last quote. It came from a book by Jeff Vanderstelt. I said this, Our job is not to be Jesus. Our job is to believe Jesus, depend on Jesus, and submit to Jesus, working in and through us to accomplish his work. Let's pray. Father in heaven, man, I, I am speaking tonight as a man who is, gosh, neck deep in this process. I get so jumbled up in my own head between what I'm trying to do and what you want me to do and the fact that it's your work through me and not me. I try so, so often way harder than I need to, to do what is not in my power to do. 
as we do not know the way in which you bring the Spirit into the bones of a woman who is with child, we do not know the ways of God who works everything. So we trust you, Lord Jesus. God, even as I think about that verse and I think about the different things that have come out in the news regarding Planned Parenthood and the, the protests that maybe some even in here were involved with today, I feel like it would be amiss to, to, to not look at this verse and go, God, would you help our country? We do not know the way in which you bring the spirit into the bones of the baby being formed in the womb with the mother, and we are far too flippant about it. I think about the way that you use men like William Wilberforce back in the, the 1700s in, in Britain to, to slowly turn the tide on the slave trade by first having to stick the noses of everyone into the, just the gory realities of slavery. And Lord, I pray that's what you're doing now in our culture, in our country. Would you keep us from one, run, running away from the gory details of what we've gotten ourselves into so that we actually are repulsed and we turn and we run Lord Jesus, would, just, would this be a true turning point? But Lord, we can't make that happen. Would you help us to trust you that you will do your work and then do the work you've given us, Lord God. I pray this in your name. Amen.